Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We are Groundworks, Inc. I'm Alice Marcus-Krieg. And I'm Carmen DeVito. And we design, install, and maintain gardens here in New York City and elsewhere. Not last week, though. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> last week, we got poked. Yeah, we did. We, got we did poked. get poked. We got poked and you end. So we're going to be a little <laughs> serene because of yeah. our latest visitor Yes. Uh, in today's show. We have a fellow garden designer with us, Jan Johnson, who was born in New York City and now works in Westchester, and her work is gorgeous. And that's Jan Johnson with an S-E-N. Welcome, Jan. Well, hello there. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm thrilled to be with you today. Thank you. So this morning, Jan and I were talking about today's show and getting oriented, and we discovered that you were actually born in New York City and that you lived in Brooklyn. Tell oh, us- yes. I grew up in Brooklyn, went to public schools there, and uh, yeah, it's my home. So tell us, um, you you had some really beautiful memories of how you came into the, like, green plant world because of Brooklyn. It was, uh, you could never believe it coming from where I came from. I grew up, as you can imagine, you're both from Brooklyn, in an apartment. And, uh, you know, my schoolyard was all concrete, and there was not much grass or many trees at all where I uh, lived, Sunset Park, Brooklyn. But the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens was... uh, my, my salvation. Yeah. And you also mentioned Greenwood Cemetery. And Greenwood Cemetery, absolutely. In fact, my uh, my grandmother would take uh, her kids there on picnics on Sunday. That was the, uh, yeah. the family picnic yeah. ground. Yeah, <laughs> for, for my family, too. We actually have these hilarious pictures of my dad as a little boy, like, frolicking around. So the do grave, I. The yes, Greenwood Cemetery. <laughs> all the, all the, after church, all the families went to Greenwood Cemetery. Right, right. Well, yeah. that... That was really how the parks, you know, the the idea for a public park came about was because yes. of the cemeteries. Yeah, and some of them are, as you know, um, are quite beautiful. Yeah. Beyond uh, Greenwood, there's some in Massachusetts, and there's some classic ones that are real. Yeah. Par- there are real parks, you know. Absolutely yeah. gorgeous. So then you went to college. You said you went to a Quaker college, and you studied landscape architecture, and then you got a master's degree in planning. Talk a yes. little bit about that. Well, what happened for me was that I, uh, and this is many decades ago, I uh, went to an art high school in New York City, but I also loved plants. Uh-huh. 
So my guidance counselor, nobody back then knew the term landscape designer, especially if you lived in the city. Right. <laughs> so my guidance counselor said, well, you like drawing and you like plants. Why don't you be a botanical illustrator? And I told her, well, I was thinking of becoming an architect. Well, we just, nobody knew about landscape architecture. So I went off to study architecture, and I went, as part of my, my college days, to Japan. Uh-huh. And, and worked as the intern in a Japanese architecture office. But what happened to me was that I lived in a city called Kyoto, where all the legendary mm. Japanese gardens are. Right. And on the weekends, I would visit those gardens, and I just flipped out. I just said, what? This is the most beautiful place I've ever been. And I went back to the architecture office, and I put the buildings in the side of the hill underground and started to design all the pathways <laughs> and the trees. And the, and my sensei said to me, you are not an architect. You are a landscape architect uh-huh. and sent me off to a landscape architecture office in Japan. Cool. And then you, you had some training in Honolulu. Oh, yes. So what happened then was from there I came home to New York and went through a major culture shock, as you can imagine. Right. And thought, well, what do I do now? I want to study landscape architecture. This is what I... And I went to University of Hawaii, and um, and that was back when, you know, tuition was like $200 a semester. Right. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. And, um, and it was very inexpensive for me to go there, and that's where I studied landscape architecture. And what a place to learn about plants. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It was great. It was, it was just fabulous. Uh, I... I don't know why I left. (laughs) It was was great. Yeah. Well, you you jumped from one island of Manhattan to, you know, to the big island. Yeah, (laughs) you've done done a a little bit of island hopping, Jan. (laughs) You know, but I did come back, and and I'm so glad I did because, you know, I... The New York area is just so beautiful, and uh, and of course New York now, as you well know, has become quite a center of design. Whether it's the High Line or Central Park or whatever it is, it's just uh, right. It's got caught up with everybody. And yeah, then some. And so then you went on to teach. Um, you were a professor at Columbia University's um, now yeah. defunct landscape design program. Sadly. That, that that's closed. And then you also do some teaching at New York Botanic Garden. That's right. Because, uh-huh. you know, I've been in now this profession for 45 years. Wow. And when I came out and I graduated University of Hawaii and I came back to um, New York, the uh, it was not that well-developed, the profession here. Mm-hmm. You know, it was still concrete plazas. This was in the 1970s. Uh-huh. And so I uh, went up to this hotel called Mohunk. Uh-huh, yeah. You know Mohunk? Yeah. And, and I got myself a job there just right out of college, and the head gardener was from France. He had studied in Versailles. Uh. And, and not studying in Versailles, excuse me. He worked in Versailles. He uh-huh. had been trained since he was 13 years old to become a professional gardener to work on all the grand um, estates in France. Right. But he decided to come to America to make his fortune, and that's how I met him. And so I then went to work with him on the grounds of Mohunk Mountain House, which is a beautiful place for people who haven't been there. It is quite yeah, it's, it's gorgeous. About two hours outside New York City. Uh huh. 
And I learned um, everything from him about planting and plant bed prep and flowers and everything. Like the real nuts and bolts, right? So so then I, you know, put that together and so I had the hands-on experience as well. So, Jan, how was it in the 70s as a woman landscape architect? How was it hard? It was ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) It was ridiculous because it was just not. It was. It's so hard to explain to young women today what it was like back then. Right. It was just not done. You were not. That was not your place. Mm-hmm. And and see. So as a young woman, I had to constantly prove to everybody that I knew what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Constant. It was like I was representing my gender. You know, I was representing yes. womanhood. You know, yeah. in the profession. So I had to know all the plant names. I hadn't. Guys would would query me and say, "Okay, what's the name of that?" And I would say, "Camisipris pacifera filifera aurea." <laughs> uh-huh. You know, and then and then they were so surprised I knew it. And of course, then of course, that didn't help. It didn't help that you knew it. No, <laughs> it they didn't. Like, right. You're just constantly um, being challenged. Today, of course, you go into. I was the only female in landscape architecture classes. Mm-hmm. Today yes. you go in. I think it's mostly female. I'm not yeah. sure, but because um, I haven't done. But it's you yeah. know it's nothing like it was. I, you just had to excel at whatever it was that you choose to do, just in order to get a, a acknowledgement. Right, right. But well, um, you know now women are you know Beatrix Ferran is is recognized now as a great designer and as you know and New York Botanic Gardens are lauding them and it's just wonderful yeah it is do you happen to know um, a woman she was in Brooklyn Heights Alice Iris absolutely yeah she's a lovely lady as right and as a matter of fact her book was one of the very first books I got way back when oh good way back when you know in the 70s yeah there weren't that many books out, and she was one of them. Yeah, yeah. she was lovely. She was at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, and um, and she was friends with a woman named Betty Skoltz. Do you know Betty Skoltz? No, I don't. She's actually a horticulturalist from Cape Town. Um, wow. And we, Carmen and I got to know her and be friends with her when we were at the Hort Society of New York, and yeah. she is one of the grand Grand ladies, ladies of horticulture. Of horticulture. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, ladies were allowed yeah. to be botanical artists. Jan, like botanical art was okay mm-hmm. for ladies to do, but right. you know, planning and it had to, it, it was just a hobby. It was never a profession. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your book. Oh yes, thank you. Yeah. So new book out. Um, Heaven is a Garden, published by St. Lynn's Press. Wonderful St. Lynn's Press. Yes. Yeah. Great They're, publishing house. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, why you chose that title and and kind of what it what it meant to you to, to write this book. Well, you know, as I mentioned to you in the beginning, I, I grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in small apartments. And so when I would go to a park or to the Botanic Gardens or, or wherever, it was like heaven to me. It was. It was like I really, I, you know, unlike people who grew up with lawns and all, I really did cherish being out in the green world. And... Um, I actually did not come up with the title. The publisher, Paul Kelly of St. Lynn's Press, suggested it to me, and he did it a little shyly and said, would you consider this as a name for your book? And the minute he said, heaven is a garden, I went, that's it. Yeah. 
that's it. Thank you so much. And um, and and I do feel that words have a resonance, and I feel that those words, even though you know some people might say, "What? What are you referring to?" I do feel like it it accurately represents what I what I'm writing about in my book. Well. Exactly. And honestly, when you look at, at, at your website, and I spent a lot of time looking at, at all of your photos and, and your work, um, it is gorgeous. It Thank is you. very geometric, but there's such rhythm um, and um, Thank you. patterning, um, but it's so seamless and it is very tranquil. That is exactly the word and serene. And your book really is a lot about the design and how to achieve that because your the photos are effortless. Like they, oh, they took my you. breath away. The oh. stonework and the water oh, and the repetition <laughs> and and just the, the well, I have a feeling that the Japanese the time yeah. in Japan had a big impact on you, Jan. Very big yeah. impact. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I yeah. mean I uh I just lived in those gardens on the weekends and I just said it seems How like you absorbed done? it. How do they do this? Yeah. And you know, this is an interesting thing I talk about in my talks, where I know why I, I started to study landscape design was because of the feeling I experienced in those wonderful Japanese gardens. And so there I go, very uh, diligently studying in landscape architecture in the college classes. But nowhere did anyone ever talk about how to create an outdoor space that makes you feel the way I felt, you know, mm-hmm. tranquil, uplifted, elevated. Mm-hmm. And they talk about drain, as what well, you guys know, because <laughs> right. you do it for a living. They talk about drainage, you talk about access, they talk about shade patterns. And I said, yeah, but where do, they, where do you talk about how to make a space that makes you feel so yeah. great? <laughs> Where's the emotion in it, exactly? And that, and because they never did, I had to figure it out on my own. And it's, you know, all these decades now where I've been thinking about it. And, and that's what I wanted to share with everyone in my book, Heaven is a Garden. So one of the um, kind of some design themes that come, in your, that come up in your book are the wonders of nature, simplicity, sanctuary, and delight. Yes. H- how to highlight a power spot in a new project. <laughs> Sheltered corners. East-facing gate, auspicious. Trees for special atmosphere, the mysteries of color, rock renaissance in a garden, and the magic of water. So these are um, kind of design words that have emotional feeling associated with them. You were telling me about some ancient techniques for creating serene outdoor spaces. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, I would love to. I would love to. And, you know, you just have to shut me up after a while. <laughs> but um, I'll give you an example, because when I say looking to the ancient traditions for uh, insight into how to create a space that makes you feel wonderful, um, every tradition talks about the four directions, whether it's the Celtics or Hawaiian or South American or Japanese or, or um, Native American, whatever it is. They all refer to the four directions. Mm-hmm. Now, in our daily life, we have GPS. You ask a kid where north is, they have no clue. And right. I, right? You ask yeah. a grown-up where north is, they wouldn't know at this point. Yeah. Whereas in the, in not 
not so distant past, the four directions really did run our lives because the sun came from the south and rose in the east, and you know, and they didn't have yeah. electric lights, so everybody knew where the north and south was. Well, I found it very interesting that all the uh, all the cultures ascribe the same qualities to the four directions. When I say qualities, I mean like characteristics. Mm-hmm. And I talk about that in the book. Like, for example, the north side being the, is always the shady side since the sun is in the south. So the north side of a building, the north side of a tree, the north side of a garden, that's the shady side. And that's the quiet side. So if someone has the, a backyard and it's in the north side of the property, and this could be in Brooklyn too, and it's the shady side, then work with that, and this is what I talk about. North is associated with stone in all the cultures, meditative mm. gardens, contemplative, and viewing gardens. And so when you look to the north, work with that mm-hmm. and, and, and um, highlight that, you know, with the ferns and the, and the astilbes and the hostas and whatever else. Mm-hmm. And and going along with that, I'll just say one more thing about the directions, although I go on to it more in the book, is that of all the four directions, the most auspicious direction by, considered by other cultures is east. Now, why is that? Well, now let me, this is so interesting, I talk about this. The If you look at Gothic cathedrals, like, say, St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York or St. John the Divine in New York or in, the, in Europe, the congregations always face east. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, and, I'm thinking well, about it. You're right. Yeah. yeah, the cathedral is facing west, but the congregation is always facing, facing yes, east. Yes. If you look at the great <laughs> old libraries of the world, not the new ones, but the old ones, let's say the 42nd Street Library, uh-huh. But and this is true for all the great libraries of the world, the windows... They're always facing what direction? East. <laughs> and the uh, the Native American teepees, they always had them open to the east. And Vastu, which is like feng shui, it's right. an Indian form of understanding space, they always tell students to face east when they're studying for their their exams. So... What is it about East, right? Well, most people will say, well, East is where the sun rises, and so that makes a lot of sense, you know. And that's true. That's absolutely true. That's where the sun rises, so people face East. However, what they've discovered is that our synapses in our brain fire more rapidly when we face East. Isn't that fascinating? That's we cosmic. Yeah, you're, you're freaking me out right That's now. That's cosmic. <laughs> We're getting on a whole celestial it was plane. The, it, was the, the, it was the moon last night, I <laughs> yes. think. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, the moon. And, and so east is also the direction where plants grow the best. If you have a vegetable garden or a rose garden, you should get the eastern light because plants wake up the way we do and they want their sunlight right when they wake up. They don't want to wait till 2 p.m. in the afternoon for their sun. They want that sun when they wake up so they can do the best growing. And that's a wise gardener's secret. I always have the veggie garden getting the sun, east light. Uh-huh. So, however, one more thing with the east, because this is true for any kind of garden design. Vastu also says all front doors should face east, 
and gates to a city should face east. And if you think about it, when you lay out a building or you lay out a garden bed, they what do they say? They say you orient the building. Mm-hmm. What does orient mean? Right, orient, just the word, east, right. Yes. Yeah. East. <laughs> orient means yeah. east. Yes. Yeah. So they always want you to, or, the orientation of a building is just what it is, to face east orientation. Uh-huh. I always thought that was so fabulous. And that was like a light bulb that went off in my head when I learned all, you know, I studied this. And I went, wow. So east is really, is the most auspicious direction. And that's something should all designers, all garden designers should know about. Mm-hmm. So there you are. That's an example of what I'm saying, looking to the ancient traditions. Okay, we have to take a break. Stay on the line, Jan. This is fascinating, and um, I wish I had a pencil so I could take notes. <laughs> Hang on. It's you're, all in the book. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Everyone in the world would have enough food to eat that was culturally appropriate and delicious. The planet would be thriving because all the food would have been grown and produced in a way that sustains us, both our bodies and our our world. But man, I do not have a magic wand. What I do have is you and this radio station, the Heritage Radio Network. That's what we're here to do. We're here to help Lead the way to a future that's more delicious, that's more fun, where we're healthier, where the plant is healthier, and we want you to be a part of that. We can't do it without you. As a nonprofit radio station, we depend on the support of our listeners. So take a minute out of your day, visit the website, and click the big beating donate tab. Throw us a few bucks. Every bit helps. We're counting on you. The following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edward Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. 
optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Hi, welcome back to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We are here with Jan Johnson with an E, um, landscape architect and author of the new book by St. Lynn's Press called Heaven is a Garden. So, Jan, let's talk about trees for special atmosphere. Oh, that'd be great. I love to talk about trees. I don't think people pay enough attention to their placement, to their choice um, at all. Um, To the depth of their planting. To the depth of their planting, (laughs) or they pay too much attention to the depth. Um, So tell us how, tell us about that that process. I would love to tell you about trees. I actually, many years ago, wrote a book on trees for the uh, Ortho series. It was called Ortho's All About Trees. And so I did a lot of research for that book, as you can imagine, because it was just strictly about trees, all the different varieties and all. But when I did all that studying about trees, of course the thing that came through to me were the messages of the trees. And that was the one thing that they had no interest in talking about in that book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, had, they looked at me as and they said, nope, cutting that part out. <laughs> and, um, and, and what I was talking about is how people can literally attune to a tree. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's like, yes, some people hug trees, but you don't have to hug them to attune to it. Right. You literally just have to be with the tree. Do I, am I starting yeah, to I, lose the audience? No, no, no. no, no. no. no ala- elaborate on that, Jan. Explain, you know, because again, this reminds me of the influence of the Japanese, mm-hmm. your, Japan, your experience in Japan, right? I mean, that yes. surely um, influenced your thinking about this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, and it even goes beyond that, which I'd love to share this with you. It's not in my book, but uh, I, when I was in high school, I joined the New York City Science Fair, and I did an experiment called the effect of sound on the growth of plants. Now, you have to understand, this was in the 1960s, <laughs> and my science teacher laughed out loud when I told her. She thought it was the most ridiculous thing she ever heard of. She thought it was ridiculous. And long story short, I won first prize. (laughs) Right on. Yeah. And the reason was because I found that um, the clicking, the the tick-tock of a clock impacted the growth of plants tremendously because I couldn't, I was living in apartments. I couldn't play music 24 hours a day. Well, fast forward several decades, I'm reading a, a, and, and I had found out through my research that that high-pitched sitar music and violin music actually makes plants grow the fastest. And so, but I thought, well, maybe because it makes the, the cytoplasm flow faster or something. I wasn't quite sure. Well, I come to find out several decades later, I'm reading, and they're saying that birdsong has the same megahertz as violin music, and all of a sudden, again, the light bulb goes off in my head, and I went, oh, my goodness, birdsong yeah. makes the plants grow. And then I did more research, and it was that the vibrations of birdsong, the high-pitched vibrations of birdsong, opens up the stomata on the bottom of the leaves. 
and that's how they grow faster. They absorb the air and the nutrients through their stomata. Wow. Isn't that I had never, I've never heard that. That's amazing. Fascinating. Yeah. Birds make the plant, and the plant, when do plants grow? They grow the most in the early morning. When do the birds sing early morning? Right. And I just, and just three days ago, I'm walking down my little front walkway, and the bees are all out, because I plant everything for bees nowadays. And all of a sudden, I hear the bees buzzing, and I go, oh, my God, I wonder if the bees buzzing is the same frequency as the bird song. I mean, I wonder if it's just one giant web. Orchestra, right. Yeah. So following up on on understanding that everything is so connected, and we are so connected to trees, I, uh, I did a lot of research on this, too. When you stand with the tree and you just have this deep silence, you might feel a little silly, but... When you strengthen your receptive abilities, when you kind of just stand there and just try to touch the trunk of a tree or something, after a few minutes, honest to goodness, you can feel a difference. So that if you go to the trunk of an oak tree and touch it and stand there for just a little bit, and then you go over, and I've done this, to the trunk of a beautiful tree called a katsura tree. Mm -hmm or a white pine tree, or a birch tree, you will literally feel a difference. It's kind of like shaking hands with people. When mm-hmm. you shake hands with a person, you can kind of feel a difference between one person and the other. Mm-hmm. The same thing with trees. It, you can feel it. And again, all the various cultures of the world ascribe the same qualities to the tree species, like everyone admits that the oak tree is a symbol of endurance and courage. You know, yeah. every yeah. The mighty oak. Right. Yes. And every and all the cultures talk about birch trees as being pliable and easy to get along with. Right. So, right? Right. And um one that um you know like oaks for example, if it's a, a, um, a symbol of courage, that is the tree that steadies us and and you know, gives us strength and anchors us. Right. And I and I believe it's no accident that Peter Walker, the great landscape architect, chose oak trees. You know, the uh, water oak trees to be planted at the World Trade Center. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he he's tuned in. Peter Walker is very tuned in. Do you um, do you know the work of um, Bill Logan? No, who is he? Bill Logan is an arborist here um, in the city. His company is Urban Arborists, and he has written several books, one of which is titled Oak, and it's all about the social and biological history. Oh, you'd love his of writing. The, yeah. Of the oak tree. It's an yeah. wow. amazing book. He also wrote a book on soil called... Dirt. Dirt, uh, the, the ecstatic something the of ecstatic the... ecstatic skin of the earth. Of the earth. I yeah. think, oh, you, I think wow. you too would... That sounds would, uh, wonderful. I will definitely look up Bill yeah. Logan, you Bill said? Logan. Bill Logan. Yeah, he's written several books. Um, he's been on our show. I think you guys are kindred he does, spirits. <laughs> yeah, he does all of our tree work. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. So Thank you so much for that well Jan when you talk with clients about you know the practical matters of choosing trees are you are you able to get into this realm with them you know in that that aspect of the process and or Uh, people are uh, when you talk trees people can relate okay you know when I get any farther afield than trees not so much but Mm -hmm. trees people love people love you know you talk about 
planting, say, like a, a, a beech tree, and beech trees are the tree of learning and um, right. prosperity, and people love beech trees, you know, and sure. so, yeah, it, it becomes a very personal thing. Um, I have a personal uh, love of witch hazels, uh-huh. and um, I remember trying to explain to a client how, you know, please plant witch hazels, they're very good energy, and I kind of lost them there. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, Once you say the so word energy, I, yeah. I didn't use that word anymore, but I just said, you know, they're very easy to grow, and they, they're native yes. trees, and, you yeah. know, all that stuff. Yeah. So one thing that... Um, that I loved about all of your work is the color palette. Oh. Um, it's very soft and subtle with these kind of punches of color, but it's not in your face. It's very um, local. And Thank you. tell us a little bit about the mysteries of color. Okay, well, you know, when I give my talks to, I always say that you should use the color that that you like. Like some people just love you know red mm-hmm. and they like the power of red and i say well let's and i ask people what colors do you like and they'll say i love red i say okay let's incorporate red in your garden mm-hmm. um and so i always kind of find out what colors people really enjoy and one one color universally that everybody loves is blue mm-hmm. everybody loves blue gardens Yet you as designers know that blue gardens are probably the hardest garden to design because blue recedes. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's what they call a very shy color. It kind of it doesn't want to be called out. It wants to hide in the shadows. Right. And, and so, um, so I talk about that, the allure of a blue garden in the book, but then in how do you create, how do you make blue stand out, mm-hmm. right? How do you do it? And and one way you do it is you always put blue in the front of the border. Don't put it in the back. Put it always in the front because, you know, it's like pushing the shy kid to the front of the class. Right. And that and so that's one of the things I do. And also I use, like, blue textures, like blue evergreens, like we, blue at weeping atlas cedars because it's, a, it's an evergreen, but it's blue, mm-hmm. and it's just something that, calls to people Mm -hmm. and so i i try to incorporate blue flowers all the time because everybody loves blue like you know cat mint or um, angelonia or alliums Mm -hmm. or uh, caryopteris or blue fescue i mean yeah i try to use a lot of blue what i what i what i recall from your pictures was also the use of the um, kind of satellite neighboring colors. So there was a lot of silver and there yes. was a lot of purple, which yes. can bring about the idea of blue without being blue. Yeah. And that was what that was what struck me, actually, was was you would creating these kind of overall hues with the neighboring colors versus. Abs- and, yes. And, you know, the other thing, too, is when is adding white because white always seems to bring out the other colors better. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is true, Jan. Um, Alice and I, when we, a lot of clients want a lot of color, and the city space is limited. And they're dark. And they're dark spaces, and right. very often they want a lot of color. And sometimes we have to really push, when I when I send them the sort of, you know, images of the 
flowers or plants and all the different colors and textures, we always include white. And there's sometimes resistance to it. They said, oh, well, white, that's a non-color. And I said, no, the oh, white... Oh, that's interesting. I know. The white is important. The white is is very important to balance and to... Neutralize. Give, and to neutralize. And it, it almost is like a palette blender, you know, and people, exactly. and people don't understand that. They're like, well, I don't want white. Get me that plant in a different color. I said, no, you need white. Yeah. You need white. You know, it has, you can't have all this and not have some white. And yeah. then when we, when we, when they do listen to us and they, they give in and they pay attention, they understand and they realize why we were right. When we've you know? willed them well. to our side. <laughs> and you want to know, we're coming the time of year where we have the dark nights. You know, September, yes. October the, is the time of the very dark nights, right? Right. And when you have, but you still have the flowers growing. You still have like the white lantana growing and yes. white chrysanthemums and white um, New yeah. Guinea impatiens. Yeah. Um, and, and if you plant those in your garden, Now's it, and the Montauk daisies. Now is when they're going to be glowing in the evening. It's true. It's magical. Haven't you noticed that the moonflowers are outrageous this year? Oh, I haven't. But that I, yeah, I wonder if this has anything to do with the moon. I don't know. <laughs> but but the the moon parents at my parents' house, the moonflowers at my parents' house, um, are. Uh, I mean, they are saucers, and they just will not stop. They are just going and going and going. Oh, that's great. And it's just amazing. And we have a gray house, and then these white flowers yeah. against it. And it's yeah. just it, it's just illuminating. It's unbelievable. Literally oh, illuminating. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I, I have in my little tiny backyard? I have the uh, variegated uh, dogwood, the, uh-huh. the shrub form, right? Uh-huh. The variegated uh, dogwood. Uh-huh. And... It is just now at this time in the fall. It still has its leaves, and it just glows in the nighttime. Yeah, we use that shrub a lot um, in um, in backyards in Manhattan and in Brooklyn that are dark. It really yes. is is amazing because it just lightens up the space. That and Hackenacloa and a chorus and all those yellow and and white variegated plants are are amazing for that. I think that's something that that your listeners would probably like to know about too. Is is what what plants are super tough yeah. and yet you know look great all year round and does like blends the green and the white together. Like I, I love the Carrix um, ice stands. Uh-huh. Oh yes, yeah. 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 And where I live, deer is such a problem, and the deer don't touch it. So it's one oh. of our you know popular plants. Good. Well, so you also have this blog called Serenity in the Garden, which oh, is yes, thank you. just yes. amazing. And I was very taken with um, a quote that you pulled from Jeffrey Jellico. The world is moving into a phase when landscape design may be well recognized as the most comprehensive of the arts. And I found that so perfect, considering all the things that your designs kind of come from all of your training and all of your spirituality. Um, do you tell us a little bit about how you chose would, that quote? You know, Jeffrey, I mean, Jeffrey Chelico, J-E-L-L-I-C-O-E, Chelico, uh-huh. he's not really pushed a lot. You know, people don't really know who he is. I mean, if you're English, you certainly do. Right. But but in this country, not. And I think he is one of the greatest writers on on landscaping and, and the history of gardens. Mm-hmm. And 
I was reading his book, and that was just one of the lines in the in the paragraph as I was reading it, and I thought, oh my goodness, that is so profound. Yeah. Uh, and he wrote it. Oh my good, several decades ago. Right. And. It's so true, isn't it? I mean, not only do you have to know all the plant varieties and everything, you have to know everything. There's to know about soil and light and drainage and paving, and it's just it's comprehensive, just right. like he said. And yeah. I, I read that and I said, bravo, bravo. Yeah, it's design, it's art history, it's color theory, it's that's right. It's you know English literature, it's everything <laughs> wrapped up into one. You know, it's culture. And it's been relegated, you know, for so long, landscape design or garden design. And, and finally, I believe that people are starting to say, well, the design of our outdoor spaces is just as important, if not more important, than to the design of our indoor space. I think so. I agree, especially <laughs> as outdoor space becomes more and more a commodity. I mean, right. it, and, and more of a rarity. Right. You know, I think it's harder for people... Um, now to be able to afford a home with a little bit of outdoor space so that when you do have it, you want to make the the most of it, you know? And and Alice and I are finding that the sort of next generation of home buyers, you know, that are a little bit younger than us, they're not necessarily wanting gardens per se like their parents did, Jan. I don't know if you're experiencing that, but they want more of an environment. Like what you know, yes. you're creating the outdoor room, the outdoor yeah. like yeah. living space, so that they want to um, enjoy it and appreciate it. But they're not wanting to be mini horticulturists or mini botanists. They're not no. into that. They want they want to feel a certain way. I'll, you you can definitely yeah. you know add to that because because I don't have a space <laughs> and I'm depressed all the time. <laughs> well, no, I meant in the yeah. sense of people at you know people asking us. Yeah. you know, they're not necessarily saying I definitely want a rose and I definitely want a hydrangea. I want to feel this mm-hmm. way or that way, Jen. Exactly, you know? and that is exactly what I'm addressing. Yeah. How do you make outdoor spaces that make you feel good? And 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 people would say to me, they'd go into these projects that I would do, whether it's big or small, and they say, I don't know what it is, but when I just walk in there, I just feel so good. Yeah. And I say, thank you so much. And it wasn't about like who did this who designed it it was more like wow this just feels so good i want to stay here for a while i want to linger here for a while i just i spent hours looking at your website at the photos (laughs) i i I felt like you so much it was lovely just gorgeous and and it is a a labor of love i have to say that i started my blog serenity in the garden several years ago and i would wake up and i would just run to the computer to write before i went off to earn my my yeah. living you know which yeah. is similar to the way you guys work um well you it, have a it, lot of upcoming lectures right can you yes i am i'm i'm speaking in lennox massachusetts um next week to the lennox garden club and i'm also going to be uh, teaching a class at the new york botanic gardens on stonework in the garden in early november Ooh, I want to take that I class. I want to take that, too. <laughs> yeah, it's a one-day class. It's really very popular. I mean, they keep asking me to give the same class every year. Yeah. I talk about the spirit of stone. I talk about how to read stones, how to place stones in the garden, how, and how the Japanese used to do it. It's very popular. Yeah. Um, well, Jan, we, I, we could talk to you for hours, but unfortunately our time has run short. Yeah. Um, Great. We Great. are going to post... 
all about your blog and the book and links to your to your website um, after the show. And uh, we'd love to have you back uh, sometime in the it. future. I would love it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for being on We Dick Thank Plans. you for your work. Beautiful. Yes. Thanks again. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. So we've been, you've been listening to We Dick Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, today's engineer was Liz Smith. Today's break music was provided by Knife Show. The theme song to our show is provided by Paul Andrew Watling, otherwise known as... Super Compute Global. <laughs> um, today's sponsor is Edwards Virginia Ham. I have tasted their ham. It's amazing. I, I, Carmen said it was better than prosciutto. I know. And then a lightning <laughs> bolt came and struck me. Um, so thank you, listener, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, tell your friends to subscribe to the show on iTunes. And feel free to get in touch with us at heritageradionetwork.org. I also wanted to add on a personal note... My One of my goals for October is to listen to, at least once, each of the 30-plus shows. So I'm going to do 30 shows or more in 30 days, and I hope that you join me in, in at least trying some other shows on the network because there's so many that are great. Next up is a short clip um, of Evolutionaries, another great show found right here on the Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening. Happy gardening. I think talking about the ingredients is, is I don't know if disingenuous is the right thing, but I find it a little tiresome to say, well, we go and get the best ingredients. No shit, we get the best ingredients too. Chef Wiley Dufresne shares his thoughts on ingredients and cooking. Now, if you want to talk about the farmers, you want to talk about the people who are putting their hands in the ground, because that's a really hard job. That job's not fun at all. And I think that we can talk about them forever and i think we should talk about them the people that help harvest our our ingredients are important but to talk about well we got this really good da, 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 I, okay me too you know it's your job as a chef to start with the best ingredients what you choose to do with them is i think totally up to you and and one is not right and one is not wrong i do think it's wrong to start with well we get oh, let's talk about these ingredients it's like i don't we don't talk about the beautiful fish that we have flown in from japan twice a week for you because we believe that you should expect us to source good ingredients and that's that's my feeling is that any chef worth his or her weight wants to start with good product for any number of reasons you want to have good product you want to have good equipment to work with that product is somebody out there going, I have the crappiest ingredients and rusty pans and we make awesome food. Come on down. I mean, nobody's saying that. That's crazy. No, we start with good ingredients and we, we have an approach of how we want to handle them and what we want to do with them, as does every other chef. And I think let's talk, you know, talk about what you're doing, not talk about where you shopped, because that's not as compelling a story. For more of Wiley's stories and thoughts, listen to Evolutionaries, available on iTunes and HeritageRadioNetwork.org.